Hey everybody, welcome to Cinemusts, the podcast that debates the must-see status of the films included in the book 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. I'm lonely old soul Mike Emmel, and I am very excited to be joined for tonight's episode by a very special guest. Joining us today is the casual cinecast's most dutiful son, Chris Reeves. Chris, welcome to the show, man. Hey, how's it going? I am doing fantastic. How are you? Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. It's my pleasure to have you, man. So we have had um, your co- one of your co-hosts, Justin Herring. He uh, got with us earlier in the season for our Singing in the Rain episode, and I vowed I would get all the other members of the Casual Cinecast before season two is over. So I'm really excited to have you here. This will leave me with two down and one to go. Nice. He's gonna for you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's all to say that I'm a huge uh, fan of your guys' show, The Casual Cinecast. You guys keep me current because uh, I don't get out to the movie theater all that often. Uh, but I don't want to step on your shoes. Would you mind just taking a minute to plug what, what you're doing on the Casual Cinecast? Yeah, absolutely. Um, once a week, we do a new film that we've just seen in the theater. Or sometimes we, like the last week, we did a ranking of Quentin Tarantino's films. So every once in a while, we'll go off book and do something like that. But most of the time, we do new films. And then once a month, we do a Criterion Collection film in one of our episodes called Casually Criterion. So... Uh, we just did Weekend, and it looks like we'll be doing Valley of the Dolls uh, this month. So I, I think that the Criterion Collection has Weekend, and they have Weekend. Which one did you guys oh, do? Oh yeah, I should say Jean-Luc Godard's Weekend, yes, there because yeah, there yeah, is yeah. a difference. <laughs> a a very big difference. <laughs> yeah, man, that's a, that's a wild movie. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty crazy. It was a fun discussion, I will say that. Um, I think the discussion was more fun than watching the movie, if, if that makes sense. I would absolutely believe that, yeah. <laughs> cool. So, and you guys just did a ranking of Quentin Tarantino movies, and I think that um, you know, this episode's dropping on a Tuesday. I think you'll have a new show on Thursday. What's that one going to be about? Yeah, we're actually going to rank our top five films of the year so far. We're just Ooh. a little bit late on that. <laughs> we're in month eight, but we're going to do the top five films of the year so far. I'm really looking forward to those. Those are always uh, some of the most fun episodes to record and uh, listen to, I think. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that to make up like a watch list of what I've got to go out and see. So I, I'm going to do that. So I'd recommend everybody else check it out to see if they either agree or disagree with your picks as we're wont to do on this show. Yeah, awesome. It's a fantastic show, man. I can't recommend it enough. So can you tell the people uh, where they can find Casual Cinecast? Yeah, you can find us on any podcast app um, under Casual Cinecast. We're basically on there. You can follow it, find us on Facebook under Casual Cinecast or Twitter under Casual Cinecast. So yeah, check us out. Let us know what you think. I highly recommend it. I love the show. Um, you guys are great. Justin is fantastic. Mike is awesome. You're pretty good yourself, Chris. So um, yeah, everybody go check out the Casual Cinecast after you are done listening to tonight's episode. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, again, Chris, it's my great pleasure to welcome you onto the show. And I want to welcome everybody who's listening. Welcome back, everybody. It is extremely great to have you all here. And we hope you enjoy the show. If you do, remember you can check out all of our other episodes at our website at cinemus.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And for daily interactions and updates on our show content, just follow us on the social media platform of your choice. Just search for Cinemusts. So Chris, you and I are here today to debate the must-see status of two movies that some might say are essential viewing. But to do that, we're going to need the help of everybody who's listening because two people alone cannot decide if a film should be considered an absolute must-see. So to help us build that essential cinema list, we need all of you who are listening to visit this episode's post at cinemus.com and vote tonight's films into one of three categories that are based on your personal recommendation level. Uh, Chris, you want to go down to the baths and explain what those three categories are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> uh, so a cinemust 
is a movie that you would recommend to every single person. Everybody needs to watch that film. Uh, a Sin of Trust is a film that you would only recommend to somebody that you kind of know their tastes and that film fits their taste. Uh, a Cinebust is not recommended for anybody uh, whatsoever. Don't watch it. Lock it up. Don't ever watch it again. I love it. Okay, so before that we offer our take on which of those categories we believe that today's two films belong in, we first need to reveal which category you, the listeners, have decided last episode's movies deserve. Did the convoluted L.A. detective stories The Big Sleep and The Big Lebowski obtain official must-see status? Let's find out right now. Well, everybody, it's just me for this section of the show because Anthony Badger, the host of our last episode, is unfortunately unable to make this recording session. The victim of blackmail, murder, undercooked fish, you be the judge. But he does send his best regards as well as his satisfaction with the final results of The Big Sleep and The Big Lebowski as voted on by you, the listeners. You guys have decided that The Big Sleep is officially a cine trust, so not an essential movie, but one worth checking out nonetheless. That got 42% of the votes with 16% voting cine must, 8% cine bust, and 33% hadn't had the chance to see it before voting. Which is okay, sometimes crap happens, as we will see when we get into the comments underneath uh, The Big Sleep. But first, the official results for The Big Lebowski, which you, the listeners, have decided is a cinema must, a movie that absolutely everybody must see, with 50% of the votes going towards that, 33% saying Cine Trust, and 17% having not seen it. And I'd also like to point out there was not a single Cinebust vote in the bunch confirming Anthony and my claim in our last episode that nobody who watches The Big Lebowski truly hates it. So of course, I'm very good with those results. That's exactly how I voted for both of these movies. And although Anthony voted The Big Sleep a Cinebust, the fact that it does not make the list of essential cinema was pretty satisfactory to him. So thank you all for your votes. And as always, we have just a smattering of comments for both movies where some voters have lent some words as to why they voted that the way they did. Only two comments for The Big Sleep. The first one, not really a comment on the movie, but more a story of the tragedy of why this person contributed to that 33% of voters who hadn't seen it. This anonymous voter said, I was only able to watch part of it, but the VHS copy I had broke and never got around to seeing it. My bad. So to this unfortunate voter out there, it's okay, you don't need to say my bad, but you know, next time maybe invest in Laserdisc instead of VHS. The only other comment comes from an anonymous and a trust voter who says the great snappy dialogue and noir mood of the Cinemust first 20 minutes combined with the overcomplicated and confusing plot of the Cinebust rest of the movie to make the big sleep a Cinetrust, reserved for film noir and Humphrey Bogart fanatics. And over on the Big Lebowski side, here's what the cinephiles are saying. From Instagram, Cade Thornley says, definitely should watch unless it's Shabbos. I would contend if it's an emergency, it's still okay to watch The Big Lebowski on Shabbos. On Facebook, our friend Cody Williams says, There are two kinds of Lebowski fans. On one side, people who love it. On the other, people who love it, but they just don't know it yet. But that's okay, we shouldn't judge. The dude abides. From Twitter, Buddy Cattell says, It's a comedy classic bursting with great characters. I honestly think, in a way, it might be the Coen's most accessible film that retains the most of their core identity. And finally, our friend The Vern from the Cinema Recall podcast says, The Big Lebowski is a movie that's a cine trust. I would recommend it to most film buffs and many cats who enjoy stoner light comedies. But I don't think it's a movie that everyone's going to embrace. It's an acquired taste that many people above a certain age will not understand. 
Interesting take. So it sounds like to the Vern, the Big Lebowski does not pass the grandma test that we're so fond of on the show, but I'm going to give him points for successfully weaving the word cats into a sentence. And those are our comments and the poll results. Thank you all so much for taking the time to visit cinemas.com and cast your votes on these movies. We will add The Big Lebowski to that list of essential cinema that we curate with your help. The Big Sleep, not so lucky, but hey, if you are a film noir fan, a Humphrey Bogart fanatic, absolutely still a recommendation from us and the community. So that locks us down for this one. We will get those results locked in for the time being. But as always, a new episode is bringing another opportunity to vote up to two movies onto or off of that essential cinema list. So make sure to visit this new episode's post at cinemus.com before midnight on August 25th to cast your vote on if tonight's two films are going to make that list. So I will not hold us back any longer, and I'm going to kick it back to Chris, who's going to introduce the films we're talking tonight and explain why we chose them. So the two films we chose are Tokyo Story and An Autumn Afternoon by Yosujiro Ozu, I believe is how you pronounce it. I just like saying Ozu because that's easier. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the reason we picked it was really because last year we watched Tokyo Story for a Casually Criterion episode. Uh, We talked about it. And to be honest, I haven't stopped thinking about it since. And I want to talk about it more. So And actually see another Ozu film. So... This is a perfect time to talk more about Tokyo Story and watch a new one and talk to you about it. Yeah, I'm super excited. I'm a, I'm a big Criterion junkie. I equally love Tokyo Story, but uh, up until you'd suggested this pairing, I hadn't actually seen another movie of his. So this was a great excuse to not only watch An Autumn Afternoon, but catch just a handful of others. So um, this is fulfilling the po- one of the podcast goals of uh, helping fill in some of the blank spots in at least my personal viewing list. So... Thanks for bringing the double feature to the show, Chris. With my pleasure. So we are going to debate the must-see status of both these movies tonight. So for anybody who's new to the show, we're going to take a couple of minutes to talk about them totally spoiler-free. We're going to give a general plot summary and try to sell you guys on both of the movies, whether you haven't seen them, haven't seen them for a long time, or maybe even haven't heard of them. Chris and I are going to vote them into one of the three categories that he described, Cinemust, Cinetrust, or Cinebust, and we're going to give three reasons apiece for why we vote the way that we did. And once we've done that for both movies, we'll lay down a spoiler warning so that you have a nice clean spot to pause the episode. Go check out the movies if you haven't uh, before we move into backing up the points that we made. So let's dive into it. We always go oldest movie first. Uh, So we have Tokyo Story from 1953. Chris, this is the headliner you have brought to the show. Would you mind telling us what that movie is about? Yeah, absolutely. It is about an older couple that uh, visits their children and grandchildren and then kind of discover that those kids have developed lives of their own and don't have time for them as much as they should. They want. <laughs> it's the feel-good movie of 1953. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mike, I am so excited to hear what your three reasons are and what you're voting this in as, so take it away. Well, I think uh, I kind of buried the lead because I just said, I love Tokyo Story. Um, it's an absolute <laughs> cinemust. I think everybody's got to see this movie. And uh, I am not alone. The, uh, the Sight and Sound poll run by the BFI, they run that every 10 years. This has been voted the third greatest movie of all time, I think, at the last standing, behind only uh, Citizen Kane and Vertigo. So really big deal. Everybody loves Ozu. Everybody who loves Ozu loves Tokyo Story. <laughs> I'm certainly no exception. Narrowing it down to three reasons why I think everybody has to see it. The first one is I think that this could possibly be the best observed film ever made about families and family units you know it's a 
a thing commonly said about Ozu that he's like the most Japanese director ever that, you know, a lot of the legends were kind of ostracized because they were considered too Western, but not Ozu. He was through and through Japanese. So you would think that that would there would kind of be like some culture shock or a bridge between, you know, me as an American viewer and his movies. But he really taps into a lot of universal things. And I think that what this movie says about families is so on point and so easy to latch on to. Um, so that's my first reason. My second reason is uh, the minimalist technique of Ozu is I think it yields very potent emotions. So this is the other thing about Ozu is he has a very distinct, very simple style with the types of shots he uses, not moving the camera. And um, I think it works best in Tokyo Story of the movies I've seen. So I think it's worth seeing just to see his visual language on full force, really getting the message of the movie across. And my last reason, I think that this is as poignant a film on time and mortality as you're likely to ever see. I, I think that not only commenting on those themes, but going along with them, like in terms of time, I think that this movie changes as you do. You know, if you watch it at a, at a young age, you see it through a certain lens. And then as you age and you see it again, all of a sudden it almost becomes like a completely different movie. It evolves with you. and. Um, I, I, only the best movies can do that, and I certainly think this one deserves its legendary status. So those are my three reasons and my vote. Chris, I think I know how you also are going to vote, but why don't you make it official? How are you going to vote for Tokyo Story? Uh, I, I can't see anything but a cinemust. I watched this last year, like I said, and I haven't stopped thinking about it. It has, and that was actually the second time I'd seen it, too. Um, it really affected me the second time. There was a lot more to it that I picked up on, and maybe that has to do with what you're talking about with the age and stuff like that. But this reveals something about humanity that everybody should watch and see. Yeah, and my three points would be, like, th this film is a hypnotic image poem. It is paced in such a way that it'll lull you into the emotions like you were talking about uh, and it becomes a potent emotional story just the way that it's paced because it, it it doesn't move very fast right but as it's the pacing goes along it it brings you further and further into the story and closer and closer to the characters I think and it really pays off at the end of the film with its emotional payoff my second reason would be I this movie, and I think this hits on your point as well, this movie couldn't culturally be further away from me. This is uh, post-World War II Japan, and I've never been in a war. You know, this I haven't been in a country that has recently gotten out of a war. But the thing about this is it, it still speaks on such a human level uh, that it speaks to me, and I couldn't be further away from where those characters were, you know, 60, 70 years ago now. And that's amazing to me because that means it's really getting at this this basic humanity. Uh, and that's really the reason we tell stories, right? Absolutely. And my third reason would be, and I think it's done this for me, it, it could change how you see the world. And that's what great cinema does. Um, and I, I also think that if, it, if, it, if you watch it and it doesn't change the way you see the world, wait. Two or three years, watch it again, <laughs> and it will. You know, I, I think that that's what this movie does. And it, like, I, I think as you age, this movie becomes much, much better, and you can appreciate it more. So those are my three reasons. Yeah, man, I couldn't agree more. It's, it sounds like we are honestly syncing up on so many of the same points, which are like a lot of the big points of why Ozu himself is an acclaimed director. 
And uh, and before we move on, I'm I'm not going to ask you if you think like, oh, is this the third best movie of all time? But it does sound like from all the praise we're giving it and what a powerful experience it is as a piece of cinema. Do you kind of feel like it definitely deserves its status as like one of the greatest movies ever made? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know that I would have said that, you know, uh, the first time I watched it, like I said, but after the second and third viewing that I've recently had, it is one of the best films ever. Uh, I love Vertigo, but this may actually be better than Vertigo. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm probably with you on that. Actually, I like Vertigo too, but it's not my favorite Hitchcock. Another, a discussion for another episode when we can talk about Vertigo. Perhaps. Um, so yeah, we we are over the moon about Tokyo Story. So if you haven't seen it, absolutely 100% recommendation from Chris and I. And before we can go uh, deep diving into it with spoilers, we first have to talk spoiler free about an autumn afternoon and give it the same treatment. So this is, uh, nine years later, this is Yasujiro Ozu's final film, and I've got the plot summary for it. So what's going on in an autumn afternoon? Spending his nights pining for the past with friends from his youth, aging widower Shuhei Hirayama, played by Ozu regular Shishu Ryu, begins considering arranging his only daughter's marriage before she grows too old. Um, so this one of three Ozu films included in the book, along with Tokyo Story and Floating Weeds. Um, ostensibly a remake, most famously, of Late Spring, a film he made in the late 40s. This is in color, in case that helps sway anybody. This is one of the very few uh, Ozu films that are in color. And um, this is my very first time watching it. Chris, had you seen An Autumn Afternoon before this? I had not. Um, Yeah, I have not. (laughs) Okay, so a little more of a raw reaction. I like this. So I'm very Mm -hmm. curious, how are you going to vote for An Autumn Afternoon? Oh, I kind of hate to do this. With both these movies, it requires a lot of the viewer, I think. I think the payoff for Tokyo Story is so much stronger uh, that I would recommend, you know, of course, Tokyo Story to anybody. Uh, However, with this one, the payoff isn't as strong as Tokyo Story. So I'm going to rate it a Cinetrust, even though I really loved it, (laughs) but I wouldn't recommend it to everybody. You know, I'd have to know what that person's tastes are first, right? So... With Cinetrust, there does come the, the caveat that it's not for everybody, but you do recommend it to some people. What kind of taste would a person have to have that you do recommend an autumn afternoon to them? Hmm, yeah, that's interesting. I think somebody that is willing... Sometimes movies ask uh, of you to do something in order to appreciate the movie further. So somebody is, that's willing to put in the work that Tokyo Story and An Autumn Afternoon ask of you especially it being a foreign film and it's uh, deliberately paced, uh, that's going to, it requires a lot of the viewer, I think. Um, So I would have to, I would, it'd have to be somebody that's willing to put in the work. So if that describes you, Chris does recommend an an autumn afternoon to you, but Chris, uh, along with your Cinetrust vote, you still have to give three reasons why you feel that way. So why don't you lay them on us? Yeah. So uh, one of the things I really liked about this film uh, and my first point would be that I really liked how this film kind of took a circuitous route to the main plot you know like it it kind of wound its way around you know and then got its it meandered is what happened it meandered through the plot and then finally got to the the heart of what was going on in this movie uh and i i was not it was not unpleasant it was a very pleasant stroll down this uh, these people's world um and i enjoyed that quite a bit uh and my second reason would be you know once again in this film, I think probably what Ozu does the best <laughs> is shows you the consequences of time. 
And both in Tokyo's story and in Autumn Afternoon, it brings it to the forefront and shows it very well, uh, the, the consequences of time and regret that, that happen uh, through life. And that's one of the reasons it's <laughs> Cinetrust. So the other thing that's really fascinating about this film, even more than Tokyo's story, is it's post-World War II Japan, and they're talking about it. There are some scenes in here where they talk about what if Japan had won the war. And I find that really fascinating. I've seen so many films, you know, being American, uh, that deal with post-World War II America, and that's great. Um, but I hadn't ever really seen Godzilla aside. Uh, any Japanese films that, you know, kind of deal with what it was like after World War II for the Japanese people. And I, I find that really fanc- fascinating and an interesting perspective that I hadn't seen before. Yeah, very nice. He, he finally gets to slip the bonds of censorship that uh, kind of constrained him in, uh, you know, even a decade before. Yeah. All right. So those are my three reasons. Mike, uh, what are yours? So this was uh, my, my first time watching this as well. Um, I'm also going to give this a Cinetrust. I think I'm less high on it than you. I actually kind of contemplated giving it Cinebust, but it oh, honestly it just didn't feel right giving an Ozu movie a, a Cinebust. <laughs> and um, as it's kind of sat with me, like I've appreciated more about it, but I'm with you that, you know, a, a lot of what is like universally immediately appealing in some of his other movies like Tokyo Story just doesn't connect here. And and another component of me voting at Cinetrust is really kind of petty. I don't normally let the selections in a thousand and one movies you must see before you die, like dictate my feelings. Like we kind of use it as a jumping off point. It provides the list of movies we can pull from. And then, you know, we we're making our own must see movie list, you know, Mm -hmm. but honestly, I got a little bitter about this being one of three Ozu movies that are chosen to be in this book. And I just felt like there were a couple of other options that I thought were a lot better, such as late spring, which this movie is ostensibly uh, a remake of. Mm-hmm. Or if they wanted to go for, you know, a, a work of Ozu's later in his career that's in color, that deals with post-war Japan, that kind of deals with the same uh, attachments to material needs and things that An Autumn Afternoon does, I probably would have put Good Morning in this slot. Um, so, so I've also got like a little bit of that. I'm going to try really hard not to make this about comparing it to Late Spring, but I think it's it's <laughs> going to be inevitable that a lot of Late Spring is going to come in because I vastly preferred that movie to this. But I did still like it. Uh, a lot more has kind of resonated with me as I've thought about it, but it's still just not clicking with me in the same way you said. It just doesn't have that in, that same impact that some of his better movies do. Uh, but if I had to put three reasons to why I don't think it's for everybody, uh, my first reason, and this one is like the one that most directly ties to comparing it to late spring, in the in this same story that is about this aging widower who is arranging for the marriage of his daughter, even though she's not particularly keen on the idea of being married away from him, An Autumn Afternoon is the father's movie. It's not really about the daughter. And in some ways I find that interesting, but in other ways I find it like a, a really big letdown. Um, and, and Late Spring is very much, I think probably not just the daughter's movie like there's they share the screen a lot more but you know the daughter character in late spring just resonates a lot more i can see a lot more of the conflict where this is just um about the father so we we'll talk about like if that's a a a hindrance or or maybe a plus uh which kind of feeds into my second point why I, i do still recommend the movie to some people is i think that here you've got 
Ozu's playfulness with traditional plotting and even gender roles, it, it's pretty moderately enjoyable. He's doing some experimental things that I think if you are a, a big fan of cinema, if like you were saying, Chris, I think I recommend this movie to the same group of people you do. People who kind of understand how movies are put together and are willing to put in the work and see how things are different. Because I think that's where Ozu gets a lot of his status, is that he does things very different from the way like a an American director would, or even I, I've heard a lot of scholars on the Criterion commentaries call them like traditional filmmakers. Mm -hmm. um, and that's on full display here. He's still playing around with a lot of things that are really fun. So your mileage is going to vary on if you find that boring or fascinating. It's a lot more of an academic pursuit. And, uh, and my third reason, I, I do still have to admit, as much as I kind of found a lot of this movie dull, a lot of that meandering you were talking about, I, I do totally have to own there is a smattering of amazingly well-observed moments. Um, one that I'll give right now just ties back to the point you made about, you know, getting post-World War II Japan from Japan's point of view. Um, there is a scene in this movie that you mentioned that I think is so fantastic, and I was pretty upset it ended as abruptly as it did to go mm -hmm. back to places I was less interested in. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'll, I'll give you that one. I'll, I'll save the rest of the scenes that I think are really great for later. But, you know, o Ozu, that's, as best I can tell, that's also his thing, is that he is not accused of being a sentimentalist, yet he, all of his movies have these profoundly well-observed moments of emotional vulnerability, familial relationships, you know, the generation gap. Like, there is no denying that An Autumn Afternoon still has a lot on its mind, and that in several sections, it presents them quite well. But, you know, to me, it just, the through line wasn't as strong. I wasn't you know, riveted the way that I was in other movies like Good Morning or Tokyo Story. Um, I, I really felt the meandering, and I think that, to me, is what knocked this down to Cinetrust. Yeah, I think I'm definitely a little bit higher on this than you are. <laughs> yeah, which which is great. I'm yeah. uh, I'm okay, I'm okay being the bad guy on this. And, uh, <laughs> I I don't think the movie sucks, but I do not love it enough to say everybody's got to see it. Yeah, I, I guess I'm right there with you. Yeah, and I, I guess I'll also just plug again. Like I, I think late spring should be in this slot. If late spring had been in the book and we've done that, I probably would have voted that cinema. So. <laughs> I'll I'll do my best not to to be unfair because an autumn <laughs> afternoon is playing by its own rules very much and uh, we can we can talk about like you know if if the deviations it makes are actually a, a form of artistic expression because I think a case could be made. All right, man. So um, those are our votes and impressions. You and I sync up great. We're we're cinemas for Tokyo Story. We're cine trust on an autumn afternoon. But um, yeah, to to cinephiles, Criterion fans, people who love Ozu or want to get into Ozu and Autumn Afternoon still sounds like it's a recommendation. So before we get into discussing these in depth with spoilers, Chris, are there any final points you'd like to make spoiler free to, to hook anybody who's never heard of these movies? No, uh, just go watch Tokyo Story. You, you must. <laughs> it is a cinema, so go watch <laughs> it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I agree. We will, of course, at, at the end of the episode, we're going to turn it over to listeners to make that final choice. You guys are going to be able to vote both the movies into Cinema, Cinetrust, or Cinebust, but I like Tokyo Story's odds. It's a movie with a big fan base. Mm -hmm. um, so let's, let's move into that, man. It sounds like it's going to be a gush fest, but I <laughs> think it's going to be fun. So why don't we start talking spoilers for Tokyo Story? <laughs> いい。そんなことありません。いや、そうじゃよ。あんたみたいな英人はないよって。お母さんも褒めとったよ。
お母様私を買いかぶってらしたんですわ買いかぶってりゃしんよいいえ私そんなおっしゃるほどのいい人間じゃありませんお父様にまでそんなふうに思っていただいてたら私の方こそかえって心苦しくっていやそんなことはないいいえそうなんです私ずるいんですお父様やお母様が思ってらっしゃるほどそういつもいつも庄司さんのことばかり考えてるわけじゃありませんいいんじゃよ忘れてくれてでもこの頃思い出さない日さえあるんです忘れてる日が多いんです Okay, Chris, so as, as we mentioned, Tokyo Story is a movie with a heavy legacy considered one of the finest achievements in cinema, and、uh, you and I pretty much agree with that. So the challenge here is、um, how do we not succumb to intimidation and the whole what can we say that hasn't been said already? But that's, that's not a problem. You know, we are trying to, to back this up as a movie that absolutely everybody has to see, and it sounds like we sync up. Um, even though we've worded it differently, on pretty much the same things. We, we tune into the same themes, we tune into Ozu's specific filming technique. So it, it sounds like the theme stuff is going to run heavy, so I think that we should start there. And I'm very interested in this idea. You have a, a hypnotic image poem that lulls you into its rhythm. And、um, I, I have like a vague idea of what an image poem is, but I wondered if we could start there and if you could back up like how this movie is one. And how it so effectively just lulls you into the rhythm.、Uh, it's the pacing of the film, right?、Uh, we take our time with the exterior shots, and those kind of feel like、uh, lyrical, you know, like, or refrains, you know, as we go through it before we get into the main chunk of people talking. So between each scene, we take, you know, three or four different shots of the outside as we slowly work our way into the room with everybody in there, right? Uh, we see trains a lot. We see smokestacks a lot.、Um, there's just a, a lot of time taken that makes it, it gives it a、um, meditative quality. Is that how you say meditative? I think so, yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of things that give it a meditative quality that I really appreciate if that's making sense to you.、Uh, it's just slowly taking its time to get to the point. And I like that. Yeah. So, so the, the question then, I guess, is.、Um... Ozu's a guy who's fascinating to me for how beloved he is by, I, I would say, a younger generation of film lovers because, like I mentioned, he's a guy whose legacy is marked by how he does the opposite of what、mm-hmm. traditional rules should be,、uh, which, you know, s- seems kind of weird that, you know, in, in the age when, you know, our, our mind bending plots and things are, are the norm and that's what the true masters do, that people could still love this guy that. You know, like you said, takes his time establishing shots that will have a shot of you know, an empty room three seconds before someone walks into it, <laughs> and then we'll leave you know, after they've left the room, that will linger for another three seconds. And, and you know, it's always interesting to me, like, why, why does that work? And specifically, why does it work in Tokyo Story, where you know, we have no patience for stuff that is boring or doesn't cut out the fat? You know, like, So, so often on this show, what we praise movies for are, are how lean they can be and how they don't waste a moment. And I wouldn't say that Tokyo Story wastes a moment, it's that it appreciates moments in a very different way. But I don't know, what do you think? Why, why does you know, his, I would say, almost like gleeful aversion to the quote unquote rules of filmmaking, why is that you know, a, a draw to him where to other filmmakers is a death sentence? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think. That Ozu does something special 
by showing the mundanity of life. And somehow you would think that would make the movie boring. Like, oh, he's just showing the mundanity of life and you end up with a boring film. But somehow through the mundanity of life, and maybe it's where he places his camera and how he shoots it, it actually makes you feel closer to the family or like a part of the family, right? Uh, and maybe that's like where, as he's breaking those rules, you know, like, uh, and especially like editing rules, it starts to make you, uh, I don't know, feel closer to the family or it envelops you more into it, especially I think with the mundanity of life, that, that part of it, seeing them do the normal everyday things really for me kind of brings me closer to the people. I know what they do when nobody's looking kind of, you know? And I think that's really like what it is that he he taps into such universal relationships and emotions in a way that kind of your one of your points is about this that culturally you know this is not your yours and mine experience we don't know what it's like to live in the day to day of the early fifties Japan and yet you feel like you fit right in I liked what mm-hmm. you said and it's it's really a key point of this point I have about this being the best observed film about families is. I feel like I'm part of the Hirayama clan when I watch this movie, and it is kind of the way that he frames the shots of the family gatherings and the way that he allows them to be problematic people, but real people, and also the way in which he doesn't judge. You know, because, man, one of the things I hate the most are the the squabbling family movies. You know, the, the movies about the estranged relatives that get together at Thanksgiving and everybody is dreading it because they hate each other. And it's an hour and a half of them fighting. And then in the last 20 minutes, they're cool because they're family. <laughs> right. And, you know, Tokyo Story, to me, I love it so much because it, it just sidesteps all that. Because as much as it paints certain characters, I would say especially Shige, the old, oldest daughter, um, as, you know, kind of fitting into that squabbling family genre that she's so cheap and disrespectful that he'll he'll always kind of show you the complete person that even... In the end, when she cries at the the news that her mom's probably not going to make it through the night, I I feel that that's a gen, genuine moment. I don't feel that that is just you know tears mm-hmm. for the sake of so- showing sorrow. I think that there's a lot of regret that comes with a complicated relationship between her and her parents that is that is built up. And and likewise, you know this this movie is kind of designed around you could very easily hero worship the parents that you could feel how could these horrible kids do this <laughs> to these wonderful parents, but he's even handed with them as well and he shows their faults and how they weren't perfect raising their kids in the past um i i think it's very fair and it that's kind of one of the things i really like about ozu is he's a he's a lot like me i feel where he he doesn't seem like super angry or judgmental like Mm -hmm. he kind of just says like everybody's got their own sets of problems like just let people be people yeah this is life right i i think Shige is a really interesting character because when I first watched it, it's really easy to hate Shige, right? Right. And I did, and talking to someone about it, they're like, no, it's, she's just got her own life going on. She may come across as rude, but that's what kids do is they grow up and they move on and they, they have their own life going on. Uh, and so Shige is actually really close to my heart now because <laughs> she's just, you know, it's just life. And that's that's what's so great about this film. It it just shows you life. And none of these characters are bad or good or, uh, you know, in the case of Shige, stirring up trouble, right? 
it's just <laughs> this is the way that life is and and that's what's so uh like both gratifying about this film and terrifying about this film <laughs> yeah exactly uh, and, and i think we both kind of had the same point about that is about how time keeps on marching whether we mm. want it to or not and we are all going to die <laughs> uh but it that doesn't necessarily matter uh it's like how we live our life or and i don't know it's just so poignant I, I don't know how do you feel about the time and uh how that's shown in this film yeah it kind of does walk that fine line between like being utterly depressing and still kind of like yeah ins- inspiring especially i think um what what is the youngest son's name is kaizo mm, i think so yeah, like his whole thing about, you know, the, the maxim, the Buddhist maxim about, you know, be a dutiful son while your parents are alive. No one can serve his parents from beyond the grave. And um, mm-hmm. and even um, Shukichi, the dad's, you know, line after, I think it's the final scene when he's talking with Noriko and he says, after his wife's passed away, he says, like, if I'd have known it would come to this, I would have treated her kinder. And and that's that's a really sad moment. And it's also kind of almost laughable because it's like, if you'd known it would come to this, like, you knew one of you was going to die someday. Like why, you know, why does that make a difference on whether or not you were kind to her or not? You know? Um, so I, I like that. That's the point it's making is it's kind of, is that reminder to, uh, to seize the day. I have a question for you on that specific thing. So he regrets not being nicer. I don't, he could have been the nicest guy to her and he would still have that regret. I think that that's sure. a natural occurrence. And so, you sure. know, like, uh, after somebody dies, you're like, well, I could have done better. You know, I think I think that's the thing that's in both of these films is like that regret, you know, after time moves on and after the opportunity to be nice to somebody has passed, mm-hmm. uh, you have regret. Even if you succeeded at being nice, you still are going to regret the things that you could have done or you think you could have done, right? And and we even see that there there is like the mirror image of that in that same scene when Noriko finally breaks down and says like, I am not the the selfless nice person you think i am i go entire days without thinking about your your dead son my ex you know my lost husband you know i'm not that good and and his reaction isn't even like the detached like oh that he that he usually you know when he hears his wife is dying he just keeps saying so she's going to die like you know like he almost can't believe it but that's not his Mm -hmm. reaction to when noriko says that his immediate response is like you should forget him and you know even there he's making this point that like you're saying they're there's also such a thing as being, you know, too pious, too nice. There, there's value also in thinking of yourself. Yeah. Oh man, that's and and, and walking that that fine tightrope. Yeah, and that that makes sense there, and and I think that applies to the kids. Like the kids have to think for themselves. They can't necessarily dote on the parents all the time, and I'm not. They're not necessarily being required to dote on their parents all the time. It's for like a week. You'd think that they'd be able to give a little bit more time for a week, but. The kids have their own lives. They're living their own lives. You know, they've moved on past their parents to a certain extent, and it's really sad. But it's it's life. It's, yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. It's there's. Uh, Noriko has this scene where she's talking to uh, her sister-in-law, right? The one that's not married yet. And yeah, Kyoko. Yeah, and I think that this is m- maybe the most. Poignant scene for me, and uh, we'll see how... You already know which one it is. I know, I know where you're going, man, yeah. And um, they're talking about why didn't they... Why didn't the uh, the rest of the family take care of the parents? Like, they don't... And 
in the sister-in-law's point of view, they could have taken a lot more time and uh, helped out and been better children. And then Nyoko says, you know what? We're going to be like that. We are going to, as we age, we're going to grow up and be like that. And then this is, I'm actually like getting goosebumps as we talk about it, but like, (laughs) And then I think uh, the sister-in-law says something like, isn't that disappointing? And yeah, and then Nyoko says, yes, how very disappointing <laughs> life and, is. And, and kind of with a smile on her face, yeah, as Noriko that, does. That's like, that's the Mona Lisa right there, because she's, uh-huh. she's saying this extremely sad thing, you know, like, about life. And she's got this smile on it. And I don't know, what does that smile mean to you? Uh, because I'm not sure what it means to me. Oh god, that that's the thing is she's so she's I think she's the best part of this movie and, yes. and I can tie this into really quick my point about, you know, the best observed film about families because I I love the the non-traditional setup of this family that it's not just parents and their kids, but here you have the the most sympathetic and the the most interesting character is the the widow of one of the lost sons, pre- presumably dead in the war and she winds up being like the favored daughter. And and I love what just the interactions, and this even goes into the minimalist technique of how it's pretty clear that even though she's not their biological daughter, she's their favorite kid. <laughs> like from the, and that's not even after she's been like super cool and taken the day off work to take them sightseeing when none of their actual kids would do it. Like the very first scene where she runs upstairs to say hello to them and apologize for meeting them at the train station, there's already in the performances this warmth towards her that they're so happy to see Noriko and they, you know, they, it seems like they like her more than they like their dead son. Um, so that, sorry, that's a, a long tangent, but I think we could spend the whole half hour talking about how good Setsukuhara <laughs> is. I, I also have just an amazingly huge crush on her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that, that smile. Yeah. Cause it's, it's in the whole movie. And I think that it, it does come into focus for me in that final scene where she talks about, I'm not, I'm not as selfless as you think I am. I'm not a nice person. But, you know, she's constantly trying to be that nice and she's the the one who goes out of her way to be respectful and honorable. But there's always a lot of pain behind it. And that's what I and that's honestly what I think it is. I think that that smile is the the mask that she puts on in, in wake of all the tragedies she's seen that she has to keep smiling and has to keep doing her best in life, even though she knows it is so utterly disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> I have another question to ask you. So we've kind of talked about like how disappointing life is, or that's what the the movie is saying that life is disappointing, and that the and time marches on, and that we'll all die. Uh, I don't necessarily walk away from this film feeling super depressed. I, I feel um, satisfied. I think it's a good movie. I don't feel depressed, I, I, but I can't lay my finger on why I feel inspired or like why I walk away from this movie and I don't feel just like killing myself, you know, because life is meaningless and disappointing and everything like that. But what, what do you have for that? <laughs> so, so, so let me run with this. Cause I can actually use this to drive home my third point about just okay, cool. as pointing a movie on time and mortality as you're likely to see. So I mentioned that this movie is going to change with you and, and you've said as much, this changes how you see the world and you know, every time you watch it and you've changed, it says something new. Mm-hmm. So that line isn't life disappointing is delivered by the youngest daughter who I think is in her early twenties. It's insinuated. I believe so. Yes. Um, 
that's a really 20 year old thing to say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I'll go with you about like how the movie changes because I first saw this movie at about that same age, early 20s. And the first time I saw it, I loved it. But to me, it was an it was entirely a movie about look at how selfish these kids are and how Mm -hmm. how awful. Oh, man, I got to go call my parents. I can't wind up like that. And, you know, at the end when she's like, isn't life disappointing? I'm like, it really is like people are scum. (laughs) Um, So I'm pushing 30 now. Um, I'm way more on the kid's side in this. And when she delivers the isn't life disappointing line, I agree with her to a point in the sense that she's very distraught at how her family is treating their parents. But I, at this point, I'm a lot more with what Noriko says that Noriko is still kind of in that camp that says like, yeah, that's not cool, but consider it from their point of view. Mm -hmm. And you know, it makes me wonder like in 30 years, like, how am I, how am I going to react to this movie then? Like, am I going to be like way more upset at the ravages of time? Am I going to be accepting because, and that doesn't really answer your, your question, but I think it's important to note like who says that line and, and right. how, you know, we're, we're watching a, a lot of generations in this movie. I think the reason that I too don't wind up super depressed at the end of this movie is because there's so much about it. That's life affirming in the you know the bouncy bus tour of tokyo and you know the excitement of moving from the small town into the city and seeing you know civilization your you know the greatness of your country and then also being able to say oh i kind of like the small town though i want to go back and i i i could probably attribute it to that line they have in you know one of the famous shots of the movie of the parents sitting on the retaining wall on the beach mm-hmm. when they make the decision that let's go home early we've we've seen what we came to see, like our, we love our family. Our kids are great, but it's time to go home. And I think that that's a key scene that can kind of sum up why I don't feel overly depressed because the trip isn't a loss to them. Like they still got what they wanted out of it, but in a way, like they're not greedy. You know, they, they recognize like it can't just be an awesome trip the whole time. Like our kids have their own lives. And, and it actually brings, me too. I, I think you just cleared it up for me as well in what you said. I think it's everybody's going to die, right? But what matters is these small moments that we have, you know, and those small life affirming moments, like when you're riding on the bus, like you said, that's what matters. You know, it's not the the big marriage weddings or or the the funerals that we go to. It's the moments in between the big moments, right? That really mm-hmm. matter. And I think that that's that's why I don't walk away super depressed when I watch this movie. And, and even the movie's admonition for the, the bad moments, that great scene in um, Noriko's apartment where she's talking about, where, where she's talking about her husband used to drink and he'd bring his buddies home when they couldn't, you know, march home drunk at night. And, mm-hmm. and then she has that line about like, but you know, now that it's not here, I miss it. And so yeah. even, even the movie's admonition, like that, that life is life. And, you know, you, you will even come to appreciate the things that you thought drove you crazy. And I, the older I get, I find that to be an immensely true observation. Yeah, that's also really interesting. This is why I wanted to talk about this film, because I think you're bringing new things about this film that I, I hadn't seen before. So I appreciate that. It, it brings something new every time. I get yeah. that. And that's, that's the thing about um, even Ozu's technique is it sounds it sounds so like deceptively simple, you know, it's, it's plotless. The camera never moves. Like everything about it seems so simple, but mm-hmm. there's, th- there's this depth underneath it, which is, you know, that's a comment that comes up in any critical analysis or praise that you're going to read from any 
established critic is the depth that lies beneath just the, the very simple stuff. And, and I like that. And, you know, I'm, I'm a guy who loves the, the sappy sentimentalism of, you know, old Hollywood movies. Like I, mm-hmm. I love Frank Capra. Um, but I love this too. I like that there isn't um, a contrived scenario drawn up to get like big emotions out that he's still managing to find all of that stuff with very realistic yet interesting scenarios, which I think is a big part of why this helps bridge like that culture gap that, that you and I are talking about, how it, it speaks very honestly about human nature. So, so my question for you on that point you made is, is what about Tokyo Story helps you overcome that, that culture gap and just immediately ingratiate you with what this film is laying out? Yeah, that is a really great question. I would say the thing that helps bridge that gap is, I mean, you, you talked about it being the, the simple story, right? And I, I think that that's it because it's a simple story with small moments that happen. And then there is a great underlying thesis or point about what humanity is. And it doesn't matter whether you're American or French or Japanese. That is a universal thing about humanity that applies to all of us. You know, that, that's what makes us the human race, you know, and we're not just Japanese or American. This is a thing that is universal and just applies wholeheartedly across the board to the human race, you know, not just uh, post-World War II Jap- Japan, right? Mm-hmm. I, and I think that that's the small, simple things is what really uh, gets you there, gets you across that bridge. So, and maybe this is making a big gap to something you weren't even considering, but do, do you think like the techniques which Ozu uses in any way like reinforce that? Or is, is it solely of just like how good his direction and the, the performances of, of his actors are? Well, yeah, I think his technique uh, applies to that that pacing thing that we talked about before. Like, for one, putting his camera so low to the ground, uh, that makes you feel like you're sitting down with the rest of the family, right? And uh, starting a shot before anybody's in there, uh, they, the character comes in, does what they need to do, and leaves. So we have like three seconds before and we have three seconds after. Um, just that that pacing really kind of lulls you into it as well. I think. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and that's part of his technique there. And you know what I just thought of like structurally, maybe a reason like this is, this is like the, the go-to intro uh, for, for Ozu is it also is kind of like a great travelogue so that if, you know, I don't, I don't know a lot about Japanese culture, but here's this movie about this, this old couple who don't know anything about Tokyo getting to see the sights of Tokyo, but not just like the touristy things. It's, Here's what the homes are like. Here's the family situations. Here's what the working class is like. Like it, it really is almost kind of like this catalog of a day in, in the life of a, a Tokyo citizen. Yeah, exactly. That actually makes a lot of sense too. It's, and it's for us now, it's not even, we can't go to that Japan. We, you know, like it's a time travel log, you know? Yeah. Uh, so we get to go see what it was like in 1953. And I, I really find that fascinating and uh, enjoy that aspect of it, you know? Uh, of both films, in fact, is it's in there. Yeah, that's actually something that hit me as I was like, man, I really want to go to Japan. And then I like stopped and realized like, no, I want to go to Japan in like 1955. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get a different Japan, I think. But yeah, it, both are viable. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> or, st- I still want to go. Yeah. So and maybe, you know, we've kind of just threaded this throughout the conversation. But your your big claim is that this movie could change how you see the world. And so I think the big question I've got to ask you is, how specifically has it changed how you personally see the world? 
how disappointing. I, I think that line <laughs> is what changed my world. <laughs> uh, and that smile. And and that we're all moving along in life, right? And we're all marching towards that end point of death. And and it can be disappointing. And that's okay. <laughs> like, uh, we can be disappointed in our children. And, and that's okay. That's natural, in fact. You can be annoyed by your parents uh, coming to visit you. And that's natural and okay, in fact. Uh, you can be annoyed at your brothers and sisters for not appreciating who your parents are. And that's natural and okay. Life can be disappointing and it's natural and okay for it to be disappointing. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, it doesn't it doesn't have to ruin yeah, your life. Yeah, you don't have to be necess- like you can consider something from somebody else's point of view and say, okay, well, that's where they're at. Uh, this they're busy. They have their the children have their own lives, and they can't necessarily make time for their parents. Uh, uh, where I wish they could, and they may even wish they could too, especially in the latter half of the film. But yeah. I, I guess I, does that satisfy your question? <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's a, it's a big question. I'm yeah. curious because because I'm with you. I think that you know this this movie really shaped how I saw myself as part of like a family unit back yeah, when I saw yeah. when I was 20s. And you know it it's always a great reminder to be like, okay, which which one am I in this? Because you know the movie gives you a wide a wide run. We have the grandparents, we have the kids. We we get I, I like that we get um, a little snippet of um, Koichi's day-to-day that the eldest mm-hmm. son that you know we get to meet his sons and the grandkids and um so we get you know minoru minoru the uh the eldest grandson who who's kind of like in a uh probably the way hollywood would have made this movie the snotty young generation that doesn't respect mm-hmm. his elders um you know it, i like that <laughs> where where you're kind of judgmental of the way that um the adult children are treating their parents you kind of are starting to see the the seeds of the cycle starting all over because um you know yeah. minoru's poor mom who is kind of powerless in the face of his just snottiness, you know, it's, you, you, you start to feel for her and, you know, she's doing her best to be like a good daughter-in-law. Like she's trying to be respectful and she's kind of getting pushed around by like what she gay and her husband are saying like, Oh, don't use the, the good fish on them. They'll be fine with just <laughs> yeah. this stuff. Um, you know, it's, it's all really well observed to be honest. I can't even remember what got me on that tangent. I think I'm just still so <laughs> into, you know, the, the, the full 360 degree view we have of the generational gap that it's not just about like the younger generation will never experience the older generation that it's also a movie about like, well, the older generation should like cut them some slack. Cause you know, they, they have these scenes and you know, the, the so-called really honest scene when the father is, you know, out drinking with his friends and he's finally starting to verbalize things that he's kind of kept to himself, that he's disappointed in his kids. And he, you know, his son's only a, a local family children's doctor. And it's Mm -hmm. kind of like, come on, man. He like went to save a kid's life. Like your sightseeing tour is, is worth less than that. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Like really, really even handed. So, so I'm with you that I think that, the way that this movie helped me kind of change how I see the world is, is to mellow out and kind of, and kind of cut people some slack. And, you know, I'm, I'm as guilty as of being judgmental as the next person, but you know, th- this movie is so good at showing that even the, you know, the most demonized character who I would say is she gay because she eats the, the nice cakes. I think that's the biggest sin she commits <laughs> is the, the really nice cakes are too good for her parents. So she'll take them. But yeah, we, uh, to bring back where we kind of opened with that even she, is busy and and is carrying what is implied to be a lot of bad blood that either she's she was very embarrassed by her parents with her mother's weight and her father's drinking that there's there's a lot of history that is conveyed through very few lines of dialogue 
That's actually something I noticed this time and thought more about um, was what is the history between Shige and like her father? Uh, because some of the other children were born and he, that was like when he quit drinking. And so they never knew him as a drinker. You know, she knew him as a drinker. And it feels like there's either she's either embarrassed or she holds a grudge against her father for drinking too much. Or there's, right. there's something there that's just that that they don't necessarily explain. But there's I feel like there's something there and a reason for Shige to be like she is. And there's your passage of time point too, and encyclical that when he comes home stumbling drunk from oh, yeah. with his friend that she's like, this, this is how it was. And now instead of being like the helpless, you know, daughter looking on her father, you know, she's in charge now. She's almost the maternal figure. She's got to set him up in the chair and it's kind of come full circle, but she still feels that helplessness. Yeah, for sure. Um, so a, a question I wanted to ask you about the technique is Ozu's also noted for his use of ellipses, that there's a lot of stuff that um, just gets skipped right over. You know, the parents travel a long ways in this movie, and it's always skipped right over. It just shows them leaving their house, and then they're walking into their kids in Tokyo. How do you think that this works? Because this seems to be violating that all-important rule of telling and not showing. Oh, because they're telling us? Yeah, that... Makes sense. Or, or that maybe even those ellipses are a bad way of framing that. But, you know, like we're saying, like, oh, we we stopped by Kaizo's on the way in or, oh, my dad used to drink and all this. You know, it, it seems like a lot of thing gets inferred through through dialogue and stuff. So, yeah, I, yeah I'm just curious because I think it works. But I'm always just curious, like, how does Ozu get away from this that he can just talk about a thing that's happened and we accept it instead of being like really pissed off that we didn't see it? That's interesting. My first reaction to that was because... It, he's showing the small moments, right? So we we don't go to the funeral. We see the after effect. We don't see her die or get sick. We see the after effect. You know, we're right. see, we're seeing we're not seeing the big moments. We're seeing the small moments. Now, where you caught me off guard was the showing and or the telling and not showing, and and that's really interesting. And I think he can get away with it because. It's the small talk that happens. If your mom and dad were to come to visit you at the house, uh, they would say, oh, you know, this is what happened on our trip. You know, does that make sense? So it, so that small talk is what would happen in mm-hmm. a, a, a normal setting, right? Yeah, it's very naturalistic. Yeah. I, that's, at least that's the best I can give you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, this, this is honestly a point I'd like to talk about much more in an autumn afternoon. Um but I kind of wanted to bring it up here because I find it doesn't work as well in an autumn afternoon, but I think it always works in Tokyo story. So I kind of wanted to just talk out really quick Mm -hmm. why it does, because I agree. And I think um, that you nailed it, that it's a lot more naturalistic. And also, you know, I think it's a great way of keeping people on their toes that if if we've kind of um, been introduced to certain characters, then losing some of the more traditional establishing shots and just being able to mark like, okay, well, that's Noriko. I know Noriko, so we must be in her apartment. You know, he, in, in a way, it, it does fulfill the rule that he shows instead of tells. Um, he just kind of, like, delays it. Yeah, he does it in a weird way, because I do think that there is, as you're watching this f- film for the first time, there is some catch-up. You know, he's not explaining everything to you. You know, like, wh- whose apartment you're in, you know, like, who the oh, different... That, that, that first um, scene where they're in Koichi's house... You, you don't have any idea who any of them are. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, it, and it takes a, a little while to finally start piecing it together. Yeah. And which I actually, I've felt that way at certain family reunions. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I, I actually think uh, 
once you figure out who they are, you feel rewarded, though. Absolutely. Like, uh, you're like, okay, I've, I've figured this out. You know, I know who these people are. And, uh, and it actually helps on a second viewing. Like, you actually almost makes you feel like you know the family because you've had to work Absolutely. to get to know who they are. So the second time yeah. around, you're like, oh, yeah, I remember, uh, you know, Noriko. Uh, and, yeah, I, I think that works really well, that this movie has, makes you have to work in order to get something from it. Mm-hmm. Yep, totally agree. Uh, so, you know, we're about at time. I think this is another one of those movies we could go on for another hour, but that doesn't necessarily make great podcasting. So are, are there any <laughs> final points you want to make while we're totally in spoilers to, to back up why Tokyo Story is, is one of the greats? If you need another point, go listen to the 30 minutes that we just had. <laughs> uh, because I <laughs> and, think... And the Casually Criterion episode yeah, you guys and did. There's, the, there's a, an appendix here. Yeah, and that, that one we went on, I think, for a lot longer, too. Um, I just think this is uh, well worth your time. I really want to thank you because, once again, this movie and this conversation has become bigger uh, from this conversation, and uh, it's become a better movie to me uh, just from you and I talking about it. So I can't wait to go watch it again, to be honest. The feeling's mutual, man. Thank you. It it, it does do that, and I I think, you know, like we kind of joked about in general impressions like you know this isn't going to make like my personal top 10 list it's not because it's not a worthy movie it's just you know i, I love jaws you know? um, right well yeah <laughs> but you know I, I can't deny what an astounding achievement this is in such a unique and different form of filmmaking which i think is is what it's often lauded for and we've talked all about that about it kind of being meandering yet still absolutely entertaining engaging poignant um, and, and I think even if that doesn't hit you at first, like it does come I, watching it, you know, in pre- preparing for this podcast for the first little bit, I was like, this is really good, but I'm kind of, where was I coming from a couple years back when I was totally on board with this being like the third greatest movie of all time? Cause I'm not really seeing it. And then, uh, we, we hit the point where mother is staying over at Kyoko's apartment and I'm like, there it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, the moment will come. So to anybody who's, you know, I don't know why you've made it 35 minutes into a spoiler filled discussion of a movie <laughs> you haven't seen, but if you have, um, be patient with it. Like this movie definitely pays off. I, I think it is one of the few that pays off like immediately as you're watching it. But like you said, Chris, upon rewatch as discussion, or even just like your own quiet reflection, it it just exponentially grows the the brilliance of it the sincerity of it the very raw universal human emotion it it's absolutely one of the greats agreed wholeheartedly so yeah we'll we'll just shut down the gush fest right there man and go into <laughs> somewhat more volatile territory but we're still going to be talking about Ozu and his world outlook and his technique so this should be fun but let's go into spoilers for an autumn afternoon <laughs> ガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャガチャ
This section is gonna be very interesting though, because while you and I have voted the same way, we are both in a trust, I feel we're at opposite ends. Like, feels like you're you're looking for like whatever excuse you could find to bump it up into Cinemus, and I'm kind of like, were it not that I feared being crucified for voting Cinemus <laughs> on a zoo film, I'd like look for an excuse to shove it down. Um, so, and this will be great, because this is our first time watching the movie. I guess I'd like to start with um, the Ozu meandering plot. So this is, you know, one of your points, like it's still a recommendation for you is the way it's kind of like winding its way around, like the main hook of the dad arranging the daughter's marriage. But you find that's not unpleasant. I don't find it unpleasant, but to me, it's meandering in some bad ways sometimes. It's not that the movie is badly made. It's that I'm not into it you know like I, i'm not as sucked along as i am with the tokyo story plot which maybe is the story maybe it's me i don't know so so basically this will be a fight for you to try to sell me <laughs> on you know what what made the movie really really great for you so let's talk about that meandering plot first of all why is that a, a boost to the movie's must-see eligibility yeah it reminds me a lot of and actually i, I listened to the commentary on this um me too by David Bordwell, and he makes uh, a really great point that it's um, a, a lot more common now in American cinema through movies like Magnolia and Shortcuts, these kind of like bigger magnum opus type films where we have a lot of different characters and we kind of wander around with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I feel like he's very correct in that it, with this film. Uh, the thing that I liked about this film that maybe isn't necessarily in the Magnolia or the shortcuts is so we're introduced to the father and then the father goes and talks to somebody else. Uh, and so we follow the father around for a while. Right. Mm. And then the father goes and talks to somebody else. And then we follow the, that person around for a little while. And, and then that person goes, you know, so like we just kind of, there's this chain of events and we, we, follow all these people around and then we get back to the father <laughs> and then we kind of do the 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 marriage uh sequence right mm-hmm. but i was never necessarily bored and i think that there is um uh a lot of character work that is really interesting like with the father's son and his wife mm-hmm. and the golf clubs and there's a lot of interesting things that are happening in there and so once we get to the end of the movie once again I feel like I know all these characters, even though it may have kind of taken some work to get there. But uh, so when at the end and they're all talking about the wedding and different things like that, I feel like I know, them, you know, and mm-hmm. I feel like I, I understand them, too. You know, so that's why I like the meandering quality of this film, because I, I don't think that they even really start in earnest uh, with the marrying off the daughter until an hour into this film, yep. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And and I actually kind of really like that. I, I'm wondering if that's my stumbling block because I, I can't help but wonder if my negative reaction to this is the, the delay of what I came there to see, that if it's a movie about marrying off the daughter, why is the daughter in it so little? And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that's not a problem in Tokyo Story because it's a movie about, like, oh, this couple travels to see their kids and, you know, the second scene is they're in Tokyo with their kids. Great. You're right. keeping your contract with me, movie. Um, I agree with you that by the end of this movie, I do feel like I know all of these people. Um, I, my, my third point, you know, my, my kind of positive point is like, I can't deny there's a smattering of 
amazing moments in this movie the uh the buying the golf club scene i think is one of them i think that whole interaction with because mm-hmm. because i'm a guy on a budget you know and and you know expenses <laughs> expenses are a team effort and i've been in that situation of like but i want it <laughs> um so that you know that again like a very unassuming naturalistic scenario that i was like oh i get that like o- ozu gets me mm-hmm. um so i feel like i got to know all these people but by the end it, it just didn't have as much an effect on me i was like these these guys were okay but I, you know, it doesn't have like the same hard hitting, um, you know, I, I don't feel as involved with these people like I do the, the Hirayama family in Tokyo story or, or, you know, the neighbors in, in good at good morning, even like I was a lot more into hanging around in that neighborhood. Like that movie succeeded to me where this one was kind of like, can you please take me to like what I came here to see already, which it, it gets back to the point we, we kind of closed out the Tokyo story section talking about Ozu's use of ellipses and how he cuts out like key things we would expect to see and I, I we talked about how it works great in tokyo story and here it, it bothered me um i i pulled this quote and i think it, it was that same commentary that um david boardwell did he was quoting ozu who had like this maxim of hide what the spectator wants to see mm-hmm. and you know in tokyo story i'm all for it i'm like great this moves things along it makes me kind of fill in the gaps it makes me an active moviegoer i like this and here i i got so just rubbed the wrong way about like things that were cut out and and one of them is um sakamoto the sailor and uh, this is another scene that i think is amazing the the scene in the bar he's the father has run into this guy that used to be a petty officer under him in the navy and and i think this is going to tie into your point about this being a post-world war ii movie from japan's point of view yeah this scene (laughs) this scene is so good to me for that reason and then they have what what's the line like he Sakamoto's kind of waxing sorrowfully about like, oh, if we'd have won, you know, they'd be playing our instruments in New York, but they'd still be chewing gum. Yeah. And then he has that great line of like, well, maybe it's better that we didn't. And I went, ooh, and I started really yeah. getting into the movie. And then it cuts to the next scene. <laughs> it's like I was like, this is not the time to take me away from what the spectator wants to see, Mr. Ozu. I have to give a call out to the song and the dance that they do with the salute because so good, so good. so good, and it's 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 like what we talked about with the time machine. We can't go back to 1953, and in this case, uh, 63 was it? Uh, yeah, 62. 62. Uh, we can't go back to 1962 Japan, but in this moment, you see him saluting it like it's this really odd moment that you know I've never really seen before, and it's great. It's and it's also sad. Um, because they did lose, and and what do you do after you lose? And I, I I almost wonder if there isn't that Ozu's isn't life a disappointment, um, and the ravages of time isn't influenced by the loss of World War II, you know, like and and what that means for your country as you know, like in general. And that's probably a whole nother podcast that we can do later on. Sure, but uh, I I found it really interesting, and and that. That moment is so great. You're you're right. Should have played longer. Yeah, it should have played longer. I agree with that. But I also think there's something here, like that I'm hearing you say, uh, that that the daughter's not in it very much, right? Right. And that you want to get to the point uh, of marrying off the daughter. Uh, for me, it or what I got from it was that it's about the father and. The way the father lives his life, I'm, obviously those, you know, and so we spend the first hour of the father living his life. He's basically on a cycle, you know, work, drink, home, 
you know, mm-hmm. and he, and I think that pays off in the end a lot more because we've spent the time with him. We see how he lives his life. And at the very end, of course, he's crushed that his daughter's gone and is filled with regret, you know, and rightfully so because he's been living his life with his buddies, imagining the past. Right. And I think that even goes into the, the, that one scene that we were just talking about uh, is just, you know, reliving the past where he probably could have just lived in the present with his daughter. You know, and I like that, you know, the the last scene in the bar that's, um, you know, he returns to this bar even when he's got nobody with him because it, it almost perfectly encapsulates his past. He can put the old war march on the record. There's this waitress who looks like his dead mm-hmm. wife, like that's the place yeah. he can go. I, I like that stuff. You know, this this kind of ties into the point I made that there's a, there's a lot of playfulness with the, the traditional plotting, because in a way, if I'm comparing this movie to late spring and saying an autumn afternoon comes up short in comparison to that movie that I can kind of appreciate that if as a filmmaker, Ozu saying, I've done this story before, what if this time I did it from the father's point of view, I can get behind that. And I do think it's well observed and I think it's fun to hang out with him and his buddies. And you know, this again, like what you're saying, this pining for the past that the March of time is still an ever present theme in this movie as much as it was in Tokyo story. The thing I'm coming up against and I, I really can't do it without comparing it to Late Spring, but Late Spring isn't a movie that's just about the daughter. It's about both of them. So I look at this movie and I say there's a way to do this to make it about both of them. And to me, as well observed as Chichi Ryu's character is, I feel like there's something missing here. And that at the end, which again is another one of these moments that I think is untouchable, you know, the final scene of this movie alone in the house with just the youngest son and the the bitterness and the regret. It's really, really good, but I I don't feel that that's earned. I I wrote down this line from uh, Boardwell's commentary. It's something he he said that, you know, he's this character, the father, is the one who will realize too late how much she really means to him. And maybe it's just because it was my first time seeing it and maybe I just need to rewatch it, but I'm not really getting that. The relationship here is not as potent to me because to me it's much more about just that march of time about the past that has gone by. So I get it. But to me, this is a more interesting movie if we're not doing the subplot about getting the daughter married off. If there could be something else that's introduced that plays a lot more into, you know, these these people from his past that keep popping up, the Gord, the Sailor, guys like that. Yeah, that's interesting too. I wonder if the daughter isn't just a, kind of a plot device, and especially in the way that you're describing it, it in which to show that time is moving on by marrying her off, you know. And it's actually really interesting, too, and this is kind of just a little bit of a side tangent, but basically when your daughter gets married in Japanese culture, uh, especially back then, from my understanding, I'm not an expert, but she basically beces a member of the other family. Like, mm-hmm. she can, she'll come visit you, but she's no longer a part of your family. So it's, it, it's a lot more... Uh, I mean, it's not a death, but it's a lot more... Giving away your daughter is a lot more like a death, you know, so there's that to it as well. So maybe that's a, a cultural thing that bars me, but, you know, where, where Tokyo Story, I think, does so much to to kind of teach you that stuff, I, I didn't mm-hmm. feel it as much in an autumn afternoon, which is weird because, like, you saying that, it, like, totally clicks. I'm like, oh, that was Noriko's situation. Like, why is mm-hmm. this this woman whose husband is dead still, like, dutifully visiting her in-laws? Right. And I'm not exactly sure on the, you know, what are the traditions of... A widow, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but I like, can you go back to your old family? But I'm not, you know, I should probably know that. <laughs> and, you know, so, so let me give you this. 
because one of my points is about, you know, if, if you're a cinephile and you like Ozu, then I'd recommend this movie to you because he has, he has a lot of fun playing with traditional plotting and gender roles and stuff. So I do recognize that there's, you know, there's kind of a lot of fun if you know the rules of movies, um, you know, having the mislead of Koichi's friend and Michiko maybe starting a romance, um, of never seeing Michiko's husband. I like this idea that in this movie, it's it's all these old men that are playing matchmaker. You know, in a more traditional movie, it's all the moms and, the, you know, the women who are orchestrating mm-hmm. it. But it's these guys at a bar talking about, you know, Viagra. Yeah. Actually, real quick, what are they... Because they didn't have Viagra back then. What are they talking about with those pills? Like, is it like it's a... something to the same effect. Yeah. No, no <laughs> doubt about it. Yeah, and, and I didn't know they had that back then. <laughs> that's that's a great joke too. Pretending that um, you know their their friend is dead because he just couldn't keep up with his young wife. Like it's another great. <laughs> yeah. movie. This, this movie really is smattered with like individual scenes or just even like beats and scenes, and I'm like, that's so good. Did you think he was dead? I thought he had passed, uh, yeah, and I was no, like, oh totally. man, <laughs> Be- because I fell into Ozu's trap. Because I was like, well, he does that. He just yeah like, yeah moves like we saw this guy <laughs> in the previous scene, and then he would just move ahead ten years to that guy being dead. So I. 100% bought it and I yeah. I also bought the um the the payback joke where that guy says it's like hey you can't um you can't give him your prospect you said that my girl could have first first dibs on it like right, I fell into right. that too Yeah I I did too <laughs> it was it's and it, they did it twice and I fell for it both times shame on me Yeah so so there's a lot of fun in that like you know as film nerds like you you can have a lot of fun with that but to me like that's Firmly cine trust territory and not cine must. Um, the, the only other thing that's really in that pointer, like you know how gender roles start to get flipped, that we have Koichi's struggle for dominance in his marriage, which is beautifully exemplified by him kind of being put to task in the when uh, Michiko comes to bring him the money and he's outed as wanting to spend it on the golf clubs. Mm-hmm. And and I can even see this point. Michiko herself is, is now kind of more defiant. She's not the self sacrificing figure that um you know Setsuko Hara is you know she she's a lot more standoffish which I think makes her a stronger female character I just don't feel that she is because I don't get to spend enough time with her or maybe I just miss Setsuko Hara because I have a huge crush on her I don't know (laughs) that could be that could be does this stuff do you think have a universal appeal to people who aren't you know film nerds who don't know like that that's Ozu's style do you think you can still have fun with all these misleads and and you know turning the rules on their head I mean, I think that that's why it's a sin of trust for me, um, because I, I would have to know the person's taste. I, like, I would be rolling the dice on recommending this movie to somebody. And, and even with Tokyo Story, I think I'm rolling the dice on recommending it to everybody. I think everybody should watch it, but I, what they get out of it is totally dependent on them. And right. I think that works for both of these movies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's 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 so much different than you know what we watch on a day-to-day basis. So... Yes, I do think that uh, normal people <laughs> can uh, enjoy this movie. It just depends on what this normal person's willing to give to it. I, I think, you know, a lot of times there are certain movies, and I've kind of gone over this a couple of times, but there are certain movies that require something of you. You you have to, this sounds really like a, it's like somewhat sacrilegious, but you have to sacrifice it or give something to the movie in order to get something back from it, right? You mm-hmm. have to work work towards it. Um and I think, yeah, I would have to be like, look, so if I recommend this movie, I'm like, look, you're going to have to do some work on this. You know, you're going to have to sit down, drink a, a cup of coffee before you watch <laughs> it. And you got to pay attention, you know, and I, I do think that it could be enjoyable. Um, 
And there's one more thing I think that occurred to me about the daughter and the father. And I, I okay. just real quick, I know we've kind of covered that a little bit more, but uh, it occurred to me as you were talking. And that is, is it possible that by showing us how the father lives and his life, spending that hour with the family and the father before we start marrying off the daughter, at the end, are we in the father's shoes? Is that what what the point of that is? Like, do we regret him not spending that time with the daughter? Like, we're like, man, you could have, you know, like, does that make sense what I'm saying? Like, uh, yeah, so no, that it totally makes sense. And I can see that that is actually what the movie is trying to do that again, t- to this line Boardwell had that it's it's kind of about trying to make you with him realize too late, like what she really meant in, in kind of an unassuming way. Yeah. To me, it's just not working. And I'm going to give you like the shittiest most dismissive answer if that's the point you're gonna make it doesn't take you an hour and 50 minutes to do it i, th- I think that's like way too much build up for a, a point that i'm not saying is simple i still think it has tremendous poignancy like it that final scene of him alone in the yeah. house and that and that tear that's a great moment but to me i just i feel kind of cheated i feel like that's something that's saying something and i'm kind of like you gave me like a foundation I guess, but I didn't really feel like the buildup to that because late and again, late spring ends almost the same way, but because that relationship is more fleshed (laughs) out and potent and there's a lot more give and take between it. Like I understand it. And here I'm just like lonely guy, sad. Got it. (laughs) Lonely guy, sad. Yeah. uh, The one thing I'm getting is I need to go watch late spring as soon as possible because if, if, if if it's better than this movie, I mean, it's worthwhile. Um, I, I think it is. I mean, this is the I think the po- the point of the podcast where we we disagree, and and then that's fine. That's fine. But like, I enjoyed my time and the circuitous route that we took to get to where we got. Um, I just don't necessarily know why, and I I I, I, mean, I can't put my finger on it, you know, because I I understand everything you're saying too. Um, it, it's interesting. It's an interesting conundrum. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm coming off overly acidic. I'm kind of playing oh, no. devil's, devil's advocate more than anything. Yeah. Because again, like I. When I turned it off, I was like, that's a bust. It's boring. He's making the same points better in other movies. But, you know, as the, the days wore on, I'm like, oh, no. And, and all these moments you and I are talking about, like, it is fun. And you do get to know these characters in a way that is uh, meaningful. Yeah, it, it is like you're saying. It's just kind of firmly trust territory. Because to me, like, that that immediate impact that I found in other movies of his isn't here. Like, it, it is, like, really chipping away and working for it. Which there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with the movie that makes you work for it. But... You know, like Tokyo Story, that's a movie that impacts me immediately. And as we found out in a half hour of discussing it, just keeps on giving. Where, <laughs> yeah. Whereas this one, it's like, you know, I, I, I really feel giving it, another, giving it another watch, knowing where it's going. All of a sudden, like a lot more stuff is going to make sense and I can really start to appreciate it more. Yeah, that's very possible, too. And I, I mean, I would say that's how Tokyo Story worked with me. I, I'm not sure that I had an immediate result the first time i watched it i mean given i think it was on like on a crappy vhs tape when i watched it the first time (laughs) but yes it and but the second and the third you know it kind of keeps giving more and more you know like uh uh, and i was also too young for tokyo story when i first watched it you know like to i I was not giving to the movie is what i would say so and and another thing i'll give um an autumn afternoon i'll talk about some things that maybe it's got on late spring is that in some ways an autumn afternoon instead of a remake seems like a sequel and and the shot that brings that to mind is that another great section of the movie where um, they brought the gourd back, found out where he lives, and that um, you know this this authority figure from this past who they admire 
is now running, you know, this cheap noodle shot. And um, we once again have Haruku Sugimura, who played Shige in Tokyo Story. She's one of Ozu's regulars. She plays his daughter. And so th- this is kind of like the, the relationship from late spring that might have been if the daughter hadn't been married off. And, and that moment she has when the gourd is passed out drinking and she just like cracks and starts sobbing. I, I think that's like the biggest like, oh, my gosh, this movie's really good moment. Yeah. To me. Yeah, I, I teared up uh, during that moment. You know, that's it's a tough moment to watch. Um, just to, so I'm clear, Shige is the same one from it's she's Shige from Tokyo Story, correct? It's the same actress, yeah. Correct, yes. So I mean, that was the thing I got. You know, we talked earlier, and I, I hate to keep going back to Tokyo Story, but like we talked earlier, like that filled in the gap for me. Like that was Shige as a younger girl, you know, oh, yeah, with yeah. Uh, her father in Tokyo yeah. Story. Yeah. And that's like it kind of connected there. And it is really interesting that, you you know, you talk about uh, late spring and uh, an autumn afternoon. He, uh, Ozu did not vary very much with his movies. He, he did not. Uh, like he kind of made the same story over and over again. Uh, and it's interesting. And I, I wonder... Like, it, once you are a completionist with all his films, like, I wonder if it's just, like, because it's the same story over and over again, but he kind of oftentimes, sh- like, has little differences and shows it from a different perspective. It's really interesting to me that, you know, like, Late Spring would be so much better to you as an autumn afternoon, and maybe it's the perspective of what he's telling you in Late Spring, Uh I don't know. Where, what are your thoughts on that? Maybe. Well, I think it's really my perspective because late spring gives me what I want, right? Like it, it pretty immediately yeah, yeah. gets into okay. the plot. It's laying out. It's got Setsukahara in it, who I love. And and yeah, I, I again, like the, the father-daughter relationship in that, I just find like very much more potent. Like they're kind of in this dilemma together, whereas in an autumn afternoon, like it's just the dad. Like he's doing this for him. Mm-hmm. And there's not, you know, a lot of crosstalk about how Michiko feels about it. But, you know, that's, that's an interesting point that you brought up about, I, I think Ebert, Ebert wrote a great movies column on An Autumn Afternoon, and I think he described that, you know, Ozu kind of has, like, the, the prism of his themes, and then, you know, light bounces through it, and, you know, one movie goes this direction, and this, you know, it's all the same thing, but different um, approaches, and, and I really can appreciate that, again, that as much as I'm kind of burned that this movie is so much more about the father than the daughter... I can't appreciate that that seems like a decisive move on his part to say, look, let's look at this scenario from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And years later, you know, wh- one thing about late spring is that it is bogged down by like the censorship that we imposed on Japan when we were occupying them after the war. And and late spring has some very interesting things about how it's kind of addressing that. Um, it got away with some cool stuff, but here, you know, they can just talk about like, we lost the war, but you know, the past was grand and here's the war march, you know, things you could never get away with. So I can appreciate right. that, you know, Ozu would say like, I want to talk about this story, but I want to be able to really talk about this stuff because I don't have these stupid Americans telling me what I can and can't <laughs> put in my movies anymore. Um, so I, I can very much appreciate it. I'm just always, I, again, I'm kind of fascinated by like why Ozu is revered that he can get away with, you know, doing this, like, you know, the, these same kinds of stories over and over and meanwhile, you know, I'm upset at Christopher Nolan because I'm like, he's doing another like <laughs> mind melding. Why can't he do something different? You know, is it, is it just the legacy? Is it, you know, at a certain point, guys That's... that died before you were born are just untouchable and you can't criticize them? Uh, well, that that is a good point. I, I do think <laughs> if film Twitter had been around back then, you know, 
that would be a bigger issue. You know, mm. I, I think back then, I don't know how many years are in between movies. So I don't know. And Disney does it too, where, right. you know, they, they remake the same movies over and over again and we pay to go see them. Uh, maybe they're not as good as Ozu's films, but um, that's... <laughs> Whoa, hot take. For, 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 yeah, hot take. <laughs> Disney not as good as Ozu. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, it's an interesting thing. I, and I don't know, quite know... I, I think it's just a lack of... Like, it's a monoculture, right? So a lack of choices, you know, and a lack of the internet. I, I think that that has a lot to do with the way we hate movies today. <laughs> And criticize be, stuff, you know. Be right. And I mean, for the record, I don't have a problem with it. I'm not like, oh, oh right. what a hack! You could, because, because again, you know, I, I'm, I'm not gonna fall down and say like I'm the biggest Ozu fan because I honestly haven't seen enough of his stuff to, uh, to know. I, I've loved three of the four, and this one is the fourth, and I still really liked it. And, and yeah, again, like Ozu's a guy who's almost like his his spot in the pantheon is so earned just because he is so different. He's cool because. He did the same movie on over and over, but his his um, awareness of, you know, the universal things that people can identify with was just so good that he could get away with it. And it did lend a different perspective because that's where, you know, if, if we're going to talk about, you know, Disney remaking their stuff and I haven't seen it, but based on what I've heard from everyone, including you guys on the casual cinecast, the Lion King <laughs> does not offer a, a new viewpoint of the Lion King from 1994. Right, exactly. Whereas... You know, I don't like an autumn afternoon as much as I like late spring, but it's different. You know, like late spring doesn't have things like the noodle shop. It doesn't have Sakamoto the sailor. It doesn't have the golf clubs. Right. If if they, if Ozu was remaking his uh, film shot for shot each time, then then it would have been a problem. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. But, he <laughs> but he's bringing something new each time. Yeah, it wasn't a hack. <laughs> yeah. You said that this movie ties back to Tokyo story that it's still that the inevitability of time and the, and the regret is still poignant and touching. Do you feel that this one is still going to connect with people in that same way that Tokyo story does? Is it as universal? Uh, no, I, I think that this is centered more on well, I mean, like we've talked about it, it's, it's on the dad. Um, I do think that inevitability of time is there, you know, like his daughter, is going to grow up like they talk about why even raise kids because all the kids are going to grow up and move out and get married. So that inevitability of time is, is for sure there and you see it at the end and it's not even that he was a horrible father or anything like that. It's life. You know, I think I've said that a lot on this episode, but life happens, you know, and that's the next step. Like, and it's the small things in between that, you know, like kind of matter in how you cherish those, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but life happens and those big moments are inevitable. Sure. <laughs> like Iron Man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I, like, I like that. Um, yeah, I, I think this one is maybe a, a, you got to be like a little more in tuned with again, empathizing with like the, the father figure. I think you have a lot of ins with Tokyo story. You've got yeah. you've got the kids, you got the parents, you got the, you know, everybody. There's somebody you can latch on to. But here, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're with Shishiryu or bust. You know? Yeah. If you're not with him, uh, the movie is going to be tough to get through. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, honestly, I, I find this one also the more challenging because to me, Tokyo story has so many things that it's. Uh, I, I, I mentioned Frank Capra. I, I kind of felt like a, a lot of the same things were getting through that 
you know, in Tokyo Story, you have the purity of that image of the grandmother on the hill watching her grandchild and her waxing philosophical on what will you be when you grow up. And that's just something that's like so easy for me to get into and just be like, yeah, like that's really deep. And that's such a, a great observation about the passing of time and the circle of life. And, you know, here it's just like, you know, guys getting together, drinking, doing the same thing. But it, it just doesn't, you know. You, you can't compete with a grandma or grandchild, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'll be around to see you when you're an adult. Yeah. That At that moment, you're like, that's when the water, you're like, oh, God, you know, <laughs> this, I'm in for it. So, yeah, An Autumn Afternoon's an, an interesting movie. I, I find, yeah, these ways in which it's deviated from his own filmography. And even, like, knowing that this was his last movie, did that flavor your interpretation of it at all? I didn't actually know that it was his last movie until after, and I was looking at some stuff, like, uh, you know, looking at the history of this film and stuff. So, no, it didn't, not while I was watching it. I mean, it doesn't feel like a last movie in any way. No. I mean, how do you feel? Well, yeah, I've seen it compared, you know, I think even the back of the Criterion box is like, oh, it's one of cinema's fondest farewells. But yeah, it doesn't seem like a, a movie that's made by, like, this is it. Goodbye, everybody. And, and I mean, it wasn't. He he was working on another movie. I think it was called like mm-hmm. Radishes and Carrots or something. You know, the, his his <laughs> I, death was as big a shock to him as anybody. Um, and, and I kind of appreciated about that. But I do think that its status as his final film is, is a pretty big reason why it's, you know, it's in a thousand one movies and maybe why even Criterion has picked it up for a Blu-ray upgrade above certain others that he's done. You know, that's... Uh, very possible. I, I think the Blu-ray would make the color pop really well, uh, but the black and whites look very well, too, very good too. Right. But that may be the reason this last film, and I feel like it was kind of a sudden death, uh, as far as I can tell. You know, he kind of went fairly quickly, I believe. Yeah. I, I do want to pause for a second and just appreciate Ozu's titles. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Like radishes and carrots was going to be one of his uh, movies. That's so great. Uh, like flavor of tea over rice. That is such a great title. It, I love it. <laughs> Tokyo me, Story is probably the most banal, but uh, an autumn you, afternoon. Go ahead. Have you heard of this movie? It's got a great title. It's called The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, I, I'm with you. I really like the titles. And, and even this one, um, An Autumn Afternoon, is actually a, a pretty big bastardization of like a direct translation. I think it's originally called The Taste of Mackerel Pike. Oh, yeah. Which, uh, yeah. As, as I understand it, is meant, you know, that it's a kind of like a bitter tasting fish. And so it's kind of about, you know, losing the daughter. But, you know, An Autumn Afternoon kind of does that. Autumn is a, a season of decay. And the, the mar- you know, death isn't quite here, but it's coming. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I'm with you. The titles are good, and um, the sequences always interesting. We we don't have the burlap sack this time. We have a, a different backdrop to the titles. Oh right, it's like a flowers and stuff, like uh, yeah, a garden I almost. Honestly, can't remember. Yeah, it was. I just remember it was different. I was like, whoa, the sack's <laughs> gone. <laughs> so yeah, man. Um, we're 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 coming up on time here, but uh, I'm I'm gonna stay kind of in my zone, sin trusting this, but. I, You've kind of got me like, I don't feel like you even had to like sway me very much. You kind of got me on the defensive and all of a sudden I was like, oh, you're right. Like this stuff is really cool and this is really cool. So I'm a little higher on the movie and I think in a couple of years I would really like to rewatch it and see if uh, maybe I was wrong. Yeah, I 
you've got me needing to see late spring, so maybe we can do uh, a late. Sp- oh no, late spring's not in the thing. Well, hey, if you know, we would love to have you back in two weeks to reveal the poll results. So if by that time you've seen late spring, we can do a, a quick like oh. one-off about it. Yes, I will make that very high on my priority list. I will uh, do that. Be very interested to hear what you think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Maybe, I, maybe I've like totally overblown it. <laughs> This is a piece of crap. No, <laughs> I don't think that that's what I'm going to say. You know, what I'm really interested in is kind of because Ozu tells the same story so often, I feel like watching all of his movies is almost a necessity because I, I, want, to, I want to see that prism that you're talking about. And I want to see the same story and the different takes on that same story in all these different ways. You know, I, I'm really interested in that. Yeah, me too. He's he's a guy I'd love to do a, a deeper dive on. I I felt kind of dirty having opinions in this episode because I I still don't feel like seeing four of this master's entire filmography really qualifies me to have an opinion about any of them. <laughs> you can have an opinion on his film for sure. Uh, I think. Yeah, and I mean I love I love Tokyo Story. So, but <laughs> who doesn't? I'm I'm trying yeah. to think. Was it? I can't keep all the critics straight up. I've just read so many articles and listened to so many commentaries because everybody loves Ozu. I, I think this one was also Ebert, but somebody just wrote out like it's impossible to love movies and not love Ozu. And that that sounds yeah. pretty pretentious. But, you know, even just in these four that I've seen, I'm kind of like, yeah, like he, he's got it down. Like he really gets at the essence of what it's about. Yeah, that, that was Ebert. Um, yeah, and he's not incorrect. I think it's it's impossible to be... I would take it one step further, and I would say that it's impossible to be human and not like <laughs> Tokyo Story. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. We'll see, we'll see how the votes lay out on that one. I do like its chances. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Ozu's a guy I would love to, to get more in. Unfortunately, Floating Weed's the only movie of his left from 1001, or 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die, but um, I, I think it would be great to do a, a Not 1001 show to talk about some other movies. I would wholeheartedly go to bat for late spring and good morning and i'm sure there's others that i'm that i'm gonna love yeah absolutely yeah any any final words that you'd like to say about either of the movies uh i they're both uh very much worth your time and the effort that you put into them great so so with that recommendation chris i think you and i we are going to lay our arguments down the fate of these movies is now up to everybody who's listening you guys are the ones who are going to decide if either both or neither of these movies are going to make that list of essential cinema that we curate with you so to do that remember you just go visit this episode's post on cinemas.com cast your vote for which category you vote them in and in two weeks we'll have you back chris to reveal how people have voted and if they truly make the pantheon of must-see movies exciting i know i I can't wait and and remember it it takes about 10 seconds to visit the site and vote it's really quick and easy but if you guys take a couple of extra seconds to give us some reasons why you vote the way you did you know if you think an autumn afternoon is a must you know tell us you know what about it is so great i love i love to be swayed i always love reading the comments Mm -hmm. and so what we'll have a little bit of time on that so if you haven't seen either of the movies the poll is going to be open until midnight on august 25th so that gives us two weekends have some time to, to take the movies in and really formulate an opinion. Um, so yeah, the, the ball is in your guys' court. We cannot wait to see how you vote for it. Um, but Chris, man, thank you so much for, for bringing the double feature to the show. Really, I, I feel both enlightened and educated because of this uh, double feature, and I really appreciate it, man. Oh, it was completely my honor, and the feeling's mutual. And one last time, where's like the best place that people can find you if uh, they want to follow more of your opinions on movies? Uh, I would go to 
Twitter or Facebook at Casual Cinecast. Like if you put those into whatever search bar and Twitter and um, Facebook, that should work for you and find us. Excellent. I highly recommend it, everybody. Chris is a great guy, if you cannot already tell after this wonderful hour and a half we've had. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure, man. We, we're looking forward to having you back as soon as we possibly can. Always takes a little bit of time, but um, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. We hope you will join us for our next show in two weeks. We do not have the movies picked out quite yet, so this one will be a bit of a mystery episode, but our beloved Ryan Victory will be returning. Uh, he's got some cool movies in the in the pipeline right now. We just need to settle on which ones. So please join us in two weeks. Remember to vote on the must-see status of Tokyo Story and An Autumn Afternoon. Really appreciate you guys listening, so we'll say goodbye, and uh, hey, maybe give your parents a call. Absolutely. I'm going to go do that right now. <laughs>